Good morning. Last week, Pastor Robert explained sort of the overview of how chapter 12 through 14 deal with that overall theme of unity. And so disunity is something that Paul has really been addressing quite hard. And he talked about it when he talked about who people follow. And when you look at disunity, it's kind of like this flower. We get self-centered and think, well, my Apollos is better to follow than Paul, so we pull off that pedal. Or Peter is better to follow than Paul. Or Paul is better to follow than Peter. Or my gift is more important than your gift. Or what I'm doing is really what's, what matters. And pretty soon, because of that self-centered nature, we just end up with a, no petals left on the flower. And that seems pretty discouraging because, in reality, we all are still caught up in that self-centered, selfish nature, which often produces disunity. And what we're going to look at today is Paul's going to show us how we get those petals back on through the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own, but through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we can. So we're looking at the verse... We're looking at the entire chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, but I'm going to focus right now on verse 31 of chapter 12. But eagerly desire the greater gift. And now I will show you the most excellent way. So initially when we listen to Paul's introduction to chapter 13, which is often referred to as the love chapter, we think, well, wait a minute. Isn't that kind of setting up gifts in that hierarchy we've just been talking about? But what he's talking about is gifts. And Pastor Robert addressed that last week, how these gifts are not an individualistic thing. They're for service and the benefit of the church. And if we're not using our gifts in the church, then there's no point. It's just sort of a thing we do for performance or for entertainment. So Paul goes right into chapter 13, and he speaks out, starting out talking about the various ways that we can have disunity. And he talks about tongues, and that if you have tongues of men and angels, or if you have prophecy and all knowledge and understand all the mysteries of the world, or if you even have faith that moves mountains, or even if you give all your wealth away to the poor, he points out without love, that is nothing. Again, it's just a performance. It's just done for entertainment. It has no real meaning or value. But how do we put those pedals back on? You know, we can talk about just the word love as being the answer of getting those pedals back on. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. But it is possible. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 points out right away. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. And so the first thing we have to realize is that faith, hope, and love, they're action words, they're verbs. If they have any use at all, they have to be used as a verb. They're used, used in service. Gracie Berman, who wrote the book In the Presence of My Enemies, her and her husband Martin were kidnapped back in May of 2001. And they remained with this terrorist group, not voluntarily, of course, for 13 months. Finally being rescued in June of 2002. When I say finally being rescued, she was rescued. Some of the other people were rescued, but her husband was killed in the crossfire between the terrorists 
and the government force rescuing her. And this is what she has to say, which I think is insightful as we look at love as a verb. I choose to believe that God does all things well. Man does not. We have made a mess of this beautiful world. If there's anything good in this life, it's from God. He has a plan, and he is sovereign. And we don't even have to guess what that plan is. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, that verse, or at least a portion of that verse you see on plaques, keychains, lots of different places. But we have to remember, Jeremiah was prophesizing when the darkest periods of Israel's history, before the whole nation was basically destroyed and everybody was taken into captivity. And yet, he prophesies God's words that he has a hope and a future for us. He has a plan for us. So when we think about that action that's needed, to have love be the type of love that makes a difference, Last Saturday in our Bible group uh, that met here, we talked about Matthew 14, verses 27 through 32. And this is that scripture where Jesus has sent the disciples on ahead of him. And then he walks on water miraculously to catch up with them. And as he's getting close, they can see what looks like a figure. And of course, they cry out in terror saying it's a ghost. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. He didn't let them wallow in in their fear at all. Take courage at his eye. Don't be afraid. Peter responds, and he says, with a little bit of doubt there, if it is you, tell me to come, to come on the water. And Jesus simply says, come. So Peter does this amazing thing. He sees faith, definitely as a verb. He gets out of the boat. Trust me, if I was there, I wouldn't even have thought about getting out of the boat. But Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking towards Jesus. But then the waves and the wind, and the, the Bible says when he saw the wind, well, I don't know how you see wind, but he probably saw the effects of the wind, which was stirring up some pretty big waves. He was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus caught him. I always think of that story when I hear the song. It's an older song, Now the Voice of Truth. Oh, what I would do to have the kind of faith it takes to climb out of this boat I'm in, onto the crashing waves, to step out of my comfort zone to the realm of the unknown where Jesus is. He's holding out his hand, but the waves are calling out my name and they laugh at me, reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed. The waves keep telling me time and time again, Boy, you'll never win. You'll never win. But then the refrain. But the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen to the voice of truth. So we're looking at faith. We're looking at hope. We're looking at love. We're looking at them as action words, as verbs. Hebrews 11.1 gives that definition of faith. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Well, what about when it doesn't seem like Jesus is reaching out immediately? 
In a newsletter from Measure of Grace, there's an article called Look Up and Lay Down, written by Greg Nowitzki. And he poses some of these questions. Is God doing anything with my life? Will he ever? What do I do while I wait? And then he goes on, basically, to say the same thing that Gracie Berman said. While we wait, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We lay down those encumbrances and those coils that so easily entangle. We look up and we lay down. He's referring to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, pointing out that Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus so that we can look forward. Another book that I've been reading called Beautifully Broken is based on a true story. Really points out, I think, very well how faith, hope, and love can work as a verb even while we wait. This book is written by Randy Hartley and William and Abrini Mizawa. I'm probably really butchering the last name. They're from Rwanda. Because the story starts out because in Rwanda, of course, back in 1994, we had that horrible, tragic genocide taking place. And it wasn't the first time that uh, there had been disputes between the two tribes, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Because the Tutsis had the ruling class, and they basically were involved in the cattle raising, the Hutus were the farmers. And when the colonial government became involved, they deliberately tried to keep the division between the groups going and favored the Tutsis. That, of course, produced a lot of bitterness over the years in the Hutu tribe. Well, there have been different outbreaks of some horrific violence in the past. But in 1994, everybody was quite hopeful. The president was from the Hutu tribe. He was starting to develop a government to include people from the Tutsis. It was looked like maybe their finally dream of having peace was there. But then in July of that year, when the president is returning from a trip, a surface-to-air missile shoots down his plane, killing all on board. And almost immediately, the Hutu extremists began this violence, the genocide. And some experts think actually it was probably the Hutus extremists that shot down their own president's plane because they had planned this genocide for some time. And in three months' time, 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus who tried to help were murdered. And it's in this environment that William and his wife and his four children find themselves. And they manage to escape to Kenya, where they lived for four years as refugees. And then someone that was a neighbor of William uh, makes some contacts and figures out that William, because of his position in working in this coffee plantation and training farmers, and since he was targeted because of his position, would be eligible to immigrate to the United States. And so he proposes this to William and basically says, I'll pay for your plane fare there and back if you decide you don't want to stay. And he prays because he and his wife were very devout Christians. And they pray and they pray about what to do because he can't take his family with him. He's the only one that meets the immigration requirements. He finally decides that it's God's plan for him to do that, so he immigrates to the United States, hoping to bring his family, now five, because he had a son born shortly after they got to Kenya, his five children and a wife. But he arrives in Nashville, Tennessee, with really no means of support. A church helps him, and he 
almost from day one, gets involved in helping other refugees and develops this ministry called Legacy Mission Village. Meanwhile, his wife, and he's sending money because now he's got some income coming in, back to his wife. His wife has been trying to work through all the red tape in Kenya to get permission to get the visa to come to the United States. And each time she just met with total resistance. But one interesting thing is when he left his family behind, he promised his wife he'd write a letter each day. And he did. And even though the immigration people kept telling her, no, we're denying your visa, we're not letting you go, your husband's abandoned you, this happens all the time, just get used to it, get over it. And she says, no, he sends me money. Well, that's just to sell, you know, he's guilty, conscience. Be happy he's sending you money, but you're not going anywhere. And finally, a thousand letters later, two years and nine months after many denials, she brings in the, all these letters to the immigration office, and she dumps them on the desk, and she says, my husband does love me. And the immigration official is, quite frankly, overwhelmed. Starts looking at all of these letters, recognize they're not even typed, they're handwritten. And finally says, you do need to go. And stamps her paper approved for the first time after all those denials. So that shows love while you wait. That action verb. And the next part of the story involves Randy Hartley's daughter. He ended up meeting and becoming friends with William through his son and William's son being in the same Boy Scout troop. But his daughter, Andrea, goes to this 4th of July celebration in a park, and it's a well, um, it's a nice part of town. When she's 12, she's allowed to go there with her friends by herself to watch fireworks, and she ends up getting molested. She keeps this as a secret for four years. And basically, when they get into the counseling because her life goes downhill, she gets involved in the alcohol, the drugs, and finally they get her into a rehab, and that's the first time her parents find out about this. This is now four years later. And she's been writing up to this point in time to a child because they went to a concert of Amy Grant and decided to sign up for the Compassion International Children. And her child was from Rwanda, a girl about her age. But she started blaming herself because she didn't do anything to stop this, so she decided she was a bad girl and started living that belief. Well, through the counseling, and early on in this writing letters to her pen pal, she asked her dad, could we go to Rwanda sometime? And he just cavalierly says, yeah, someday. Well, four years later, and after a lot of torture of trying to get his daughter back on track, he finally thinks, now's the time. So he tells his daughter, we're going to go. She says, but I don't have any money. How can I play for the ticket? She says, I'll tell you what. You work as a volunteer at Legacy Mission Village, and that's how you will pay for your your ticket. And she does. And she really warms up to the kids there and she starts finding purpose in her life and she starts moving past the pain. And this is what William has to say about that. Regarding Andrew's takeaway from Rwanda after the visit, William says quite wisely, she was wounded, but she saw other people who were more seriously wounded than her and still having hope. And by working and touching and coming in contact with people who have been seriously wounded, she realized that she could be healed. So that's one of the reasons why we can't keep our pain all to ourselves. 
because our wounds can help someone else heal. And that's learning to love as an action word. As Robert, Pastor Robert shared last week, it's really silly to get into these divisions because it's by one spirit that we receive all these things. It's through one God, it's through Jesus Christ. But that love can produce that unity. And so I just want to read from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to read all of it. It's often read at weddings, but obviously this is written for a dysfunctional church to learn how to put petals back on a flower, how to get back into unity. And starting at verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Then he goes on to talk about these other gifts, which the Corinthians were getting a little puffed up about and saying they're all going to cease. But three things are going to remain. And those are the three things that bring unity when we treat them as a verb. And that is faith, hope, and love. And even while we wait, even while we wait, when we think God's doing nothing in our life, it allows those petals to get put, put back and that unity to come back to the church so that we can uphold each other in our hurts and our wounds but still have hope, the hope of Jesus. If you would pray with me, thank you, Father, for your love. Just guide us, direct us to live in unity by loving as a verb. In Jesus' name, amen.